0: Welcome, church, and welcome to all those online tuning in. I'm glad you can be here with us. Our passage today is Acts 18, verses 18 through 28. Uh, So you can flip there now, and I'll give you just a minute. We're going to start our time by reading uh, the first section through verse 23. After this... Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Cancrea he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period he declined. But on taking leave of them he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So we finally come to the end of Paul's second missionary journey in this text. It seems that after the events of last week, uh, Paul stayed in Corinth for a little while teaching, and then he left. And he brings with him Priscilla and Aquila on his journey home back to Jerusalem. Now, maybe you're wondering why uh, Paul cuts his hair. It is kind of weird. Uh, so let me do address that real quick. Uh, you can read more about this vow that he's taken in number six. It's called a Nazarite vow. Um, but in short, we know that a Nazarite vow involved abstaining from alcohol. He'd keep himself away from dead bodies. And he wouldn't be able to cut his hair for the length of the vow. Uh, we don't actually know why Paul took the vow. the The text doesn't tell us that, um, but it's almost as though he's accomplished what he set out to do. Uh, he's he's reached all these churches, and now he's coming back. And so, um, maybe it was God had protected him. Maybe it was he finally did what he said he was going to do on this journey. Um, but we do know that when he cut his hair, he had probably about 30 days to go back to Jerusalem and offer it before the Lord on the altar. That was how you completed the vow. And so this really sped up Paul's timetable to get back to Jerusalem. Now on the journey that home, we read that Paul comes to Ephesus, uh, which is in Asia Minor. And this is significant because if you remember early on in this journey, he tried to go into Asia with the gospel, but the Spirit prevented him. And so he instead went all the way around, and then now on his way back by ship, he comes to Ephesus. And so as was Paul's custom. He goes to the synagogue, he begins teaching the Jews, and perhaps what's most surprising about this text is that Paul is teaching them, and they want to hear more, not like the church in Corinth uh, where the Jews kicked him out of the synagogue, and yet the surprising thing is that he, even though they want to hear more, he doesn't stay. He says he has to leave, and yet in Corinth he stayed for a year and a half and taught, so uh, what's that about? Well, Most likely, Paul wanted to return to Jerusalem in time for Passover. He wanted to report on his journey and he wanted to finish this vow that he had made. And so, I think there's something else though that's significant going on here in the text. And it's the beginning of something beautiful that we're gonna see throughout this whole passage. Part of the reason I think Paul leaves is because he is not only concerned with reaching new people with the gospel, but he's also concerned with caring for the churches who've already received the gospel and raising up leaders. You see, even though he can't stay at Ephesus, Paul doesn't waste an opportunity to care for the church and invest in new leaders, and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to continue gospel work. It wasn't that Paul didn't care about the Ephesians. It wasn't that he, he didn't want them to hear the gospel. That's why he left Priscilla and Aquila. But he had a bigger view than just the places he'd never been. And I think this is consistent with Paul's character across the Bible, actually. Uh, if you look at this, even in this chapter, verse 23, Paul journeys through these other cities that he's traveled to, and there he stops to strengthen the disciples. Paul's not just about people making a confession He's always about developing Christians as well. And I think this is something worth considering together this morning. If you look across Paul's letters, he's always trying to raise up new leaders in the church. For a man so great, so loved, with such a high position as an apostle, he really is not concerned with the prestige of that. He's only concerned with fulfilling the ministry that God has given him. And that involves raising up leaders. Every church that he goes to, he instructs and cares for the people there, trying to appoint elders until they're ready to take the mantle, until he can leave and they'll be leading the church themselves. Much like John the Baptist, who was more concerned with his disciples following after Jesus, so Paul sees himself as a servant just trying to help other people follow after Christ. I think you can consider this desire further if you look at Paul's letters in Timothy and Titus, the way he admonishes those men to lead the church, or consider Paul's final greetings in his letters. He often says he wishes to return to these churches, and he talks about who he's sending to help them, and he encourages the believers there to fulfill the ministries that God has placed upon them. You see, everywhere Paul goes, He's not just thinking how to evangelize the unreached. He's also thinking about how to build up the church and, in humility, how to raise up the leaders who will one day replace him. As we consider what this means for us to be faithful with the gospel, let us at Church on Mill be reminded that part of our responsibility is not just our own personal growth and not even just the evangelization of non believers, though those things are important but also the discipleship of one another. The passing of the torch from one generation of Christians to the next. And all of us stand here today because somebody has faithfully done that and somebody else did that for them. And for 2,000 years, this torch has been passed. So I hope that we're up to the task like Paul, that we consider a day when we will not be here. Will there be other Christians to take our place? We could reach all of Tempe, all of ASU, but if we don't care to really develop people in Christ, there's going to be nobody to carry the mantle when we're gone. Let us think like Paul, not only of ourselves, but also of those who come after us. Now this leads to the, por- the main portion of our passage today. Uh, on the subject of helping one another grow up in Christ, how can we better do that at church on mill well i think this next passage acts as a sort of case study for us paul left ephesus but not before entrusting the ministry to a meager couple of tent makers priscilla and aquila and i love that always passing the torch so let's read verse 24 through 28 and see what happened while paul was away now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Though he, only, he knew only the baptism of John, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. So Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and goes back to Jerusalem. Meanwhile, back in Ephesus, we get this new hot shot that rolls into town. Apollos. Before I get into details about this conversation that he has with Priscilla and Aquila, let's consider who Apollos is. It's the first time that he's mentioned in the Bible here in chapter 18 of Acts. And it's hard to think of a biblical character who gets a better introduction than this guy. I mean, look at how Luke describes him. First off, Apollos hails from Alexandria, which was the hub of Hellenistic Judaism at the time. It was a home to the famous library at Alexandria, a place of knowledge. Alexandria was where the teachers of God's law interacted with the great philosophers of the Greco-Roman world. It was the home of Philo and later great church fathers like Clement, Origen, and Athanasius. So Apollos comes from a prestigious background. This place meant something to people. It'd almost be like having gone to school in Cambridge or Oxford. Luke also writes though that Apollos was an eloquent man, a real orator, a poet. He had the gift of gab, the silver tongue. When he spoke, he captured attention, the very opposite of Paul really, who was rather unimpressive in his public speech. As you may remember in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says he was unskilled in speaking. In another place he says he came not with lofty speech but knowing only Christ crucified. Paul was not much of a public speaker but not Apollos. Apollos was eloquent. And eloquence in the Greco-Roman world was a, a coveted trait. It was something that you could be born with, you could have natural talent in but to be eloquent meant that he probably had formal training. He was polished And he was also competent in the scriptures, as Luke writes. And I like the way that KJV actually translate this because it more closely gives the connotation of the Greek. He wasn't just competent in the scriptures, he was mighty in the scriptures. Can you imagine that, to be called by others, mighty in the scriptures, to wield the word of God as a weapon, as a tool with precision and exactness? Apollos knew his Old Testament He studied it. He used it to great effect in his proclamation. And what a quality that any Christian should hope to have. That we should all aspire to, to be people who are mighty in the scriptures. The text also says, Apollos had been instructed in the way of the Lord. This phrase can only mean one thing in the context of Acts. It was that he was taught the gospel It meant that Apollos was not only a student of the law of God, but also of Jesus. He knew who he was. He knew what Jesus taught. And with that, he would have been able to wield his knowledge of the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching to great effect. Luke also says that Apollos was fervent in spirit. And you can translate this one in two ways. In Greek, there's an article before spirit. So it could mean he was fervent in the spirit the Holy Spirit, plausible. Uh, but most of them see this as a phrase used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to great passion. The connotation is that he's boiling up on the inside. That he believed what he said. He spoke powerfully. That this man was trained, educated, talented. He could wield his words and his theology, but he did it with a heart on fire. The famous Preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, once defined preaching as theology coming through a man who is on fire. And as we consider this testimony of Apollos, I don't know if we get a better example. And the final and most important quality Apollos was a man who taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. It's one thing to be passionate. It's another thing to be talented but it's another thing entirely to be accurate to be faithful in teaching and apollos was all of these things but most important he taught accurately the things concerning jesus and so can you picture this situation when priscilla and aquila walk into the synagogue and they see this man who they've never seen before preaching the gospel preaching accurately the things about jesus with joy with fervor it's exciting. And yet the text doesn't stop there. As they listened, they probably noticed something was missing. Apollos preached rightly. He preached eloquently. He even preached Jesus. And yet he didn't mention the part about being, repenting and being baptized in the name of Jesus. If he did mention baptism, it was John's baptism. It was an anticipatory baptism. It wasn't christian baptism it wasn't the sign of the transformed life that christian baptism is apollos only knew the baptism of john it seems as if he knew the gospel he heard of jesus he probably even knew about the death and resurrection of christ and yet he maybe left before pentecost he didn't know that the spirit had come and that jesus commanded the disciples to be baptized in his name And so he was preaching the gospel, but he never got to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Now consider that issue in the narrative of Acts. People hear the gospel in Acts, the gospel's preached, and they're told to repent and be baptized. That's the narrative of Acts. Not to mention the whole rest of the New Testament doesn't even have a category for an unbaptized believer. Well, this is a big problem. This is preaching the gospel without giving an adequate way for people to respond. And it's an issue big enough that not only do Priscilla and Aquila take Apollos aside afterwards and fill him in, but to this day, Orthodox people read this text about Apollos and they wonder if he was actually even a believer or not. In other words, even though he was eloquent, he was educated, he was talented, And on fire, he had a big enough theological error that some people call his whole ministry into question and even his own salvation. And it's really a tough call. Um, Orthodox Christians fall on either side of this. Um, People that we would study from and learn from, some think he's a believer and some don't. After my time studying, though, I'll tell you what I think. Um, I think Paulus was a Christian. In the same way that the disciples were Christians, after the death of Jesus, and yet before Pentecost. Pentecost had come and filled them with the Spirit, um, but that wasn't the moment that they became believers. The disciples were believers before that. It seems like Apollos is in the same sort of situation. Apollos knew Jesus, knew his teaching, knew about the death and resurrection, and believed it, and yet he didn't really know about the indwelling of the Spirit. He didn't know that Jesus commanded baptism in his name. And I think this is supported by the fact that, for one, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. That's pretty hard to do, but he also did it zealously. (laughs) It's hard to fake. Now, regardless of how you land on this issue, it doesn't change the fact that the man was gifted and yet he was also flawed and in need of some help. Well, thank God that Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and that they had the courage to go to this brother and explain the gospel to him more accurately. We all need that sometimes, don't we? This exchange is only a small paragraph and yet it so powerfully shows us how Christians who lead in humble correction and receptivity will bring about powerful gospel ministry. So let's think about this conversation in terms of a case study. How can we better help one another grow up in Christ? Well, let's look at three applications we can draw out. The first thing that this text reminds us of is that all of us need correction sometimes. Apollos was a great man. He's from Alexandria. He was educated. He was eloquent. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was instructed in the way of God and he taught with fire in his heart and yet he was in error. Even the best and most gifted of us need correction from time to time. Now when I say correction, I want to be clear to define what I mean here. I I don't think Apollos was sinning intentionally, I don't, well, I don't think he was sinning, I don't think he was teaching falsely intentionally. Uh, Certainly, false teachers exist. People who distort and twist the gospel exist, and the church ought to be on lookout for those kinds of people. We ought to be prepared to handle that, but I don't think that's what this text is talking about. But what the text does show us is that it is possible to be a person who does not intend to be in error, but Is. Not intentional sin, just human mistake. Ignorance. Even the brightest and the best of us. And I think this should, should really humble us. I don't imagine that any of us here in this room have a complete and perfect understanding of, of all the theological issues or all the theological thoughts that we have. There are even things that we believe in this room that are wrong, but you don't know what you don't know. We need each other. We need to be surrounded by others who are willing to take us aside and gently, humbly, and yet directly and honestly correct us. This passage reminds us that we don't know what we don't know, and so we need to be surrounded by believers who are willing to come alongside us and instruct us in the way of God more accurately. We will all need that in this life. Now, maybe you aren't a theological guru. Maybe you doubt your ability to really help people in this way, really instruct others, or come alongside someone and encourage them. Hopefully, this next application is encouraging for you. The second thing I think this text shows us is that every believer has something to offer in helping one another grow up in Christ. One of the most amazing things about this text is Priscilla and Aquila. We spend a lot of time talking about how high and mighty Apollos is, but consider them. They're humble Jewish tent makers. They're blue-collar workers, essentially. Refugees, even. If you look at the chapter before, Claudius kicked them out of Rome along with the other Jews. They aren't close to the theological background of Apollos. They have none of the formal training, and yet these are the people who call aside Apollos and instruct him in the way more accurately. If not for their boldness or their care, who knows what would have happened to Apollos, what he would have taught, what he'd have to apologize later for teaching. (laughs) For humble tent makers to correct a theological giant like Apollos... I think this shows us that you don't have to be a theological expert to encourage and help other believers along. Sometimes the pastor needs to hear from the layman. And I think this goes beyond theology, but connects even to just interacting with people who are different than us in the church. And this is one reason why I really love gospel communities. Uh, in our church. If you're not part of a gospel community, I encourage you to find one and get, become a part of it. Uh, these are groups of people that gather together to study the word of God and help each other evangelistically to reach their neighbors and the people that live around them. And one remarkable thing about gospel communities is that we don't segregate by age or by life circumstance. Rather, Everyone from the 13-year-old to the married couple to the college student to the 80-year-old widow are in the same room pouring over the same scriptures and encouraging one another in their walks with Christ. And we don't segregate because we believe that everyone has something to offer in helping each other grow up in Christ. The gospel is incredible that it, it gathers these people that really have no reason to spend time together. And yet, It binds them in their unity with Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to spend time with people who've been a Christian 40 years longer than I have. So when they say Christ is good, I can trust their experience that I don't have. I want to be instructed by couples who've been married longer than I have. And I need a high school or a college student in my life to remind me the joy and the passion of being a disciple that I so easily forget. We all have something to offer each other, we need each other. And I think that we see a picture of that in these humble tent makers instructing and helping Apollos, the theologian. And that leads us to application number three. I think this text gives us a perfect example of how we ought to go about both correcting others and receiving correction. When Priscilla and Aquila hear this error from Apollos, they don't call him out in front of the synagogue. They don't even explicitly say he's wrong to his face right then and there, but they take him aside and they talk to him privately. Now, I don't, I don't know what exactly that looks like, but I imagine maybe it was something like this. Apollos is preaching in the the gospel and Priscilla and Aquila listen and they really like what they hear. They see this guy they've never met and he's teaching accurately the things of Christ and he's doing it passionately. And yet when he gets to the end, he just doesn't give a real way to respond. He doesn't talk about baptism in the name of Jesus. And if he does mention it, he's talking about the wrong thing. He's talking about John's baptism. And so when Priscilla and Aquila hear this, They take him aside. Maybe after he's finished, maybe they encouraged him. Maybe they brought him over to where they were staying and they fed the guy. And then over a full stomach, gently and boldly said, you did good, but we really want to talk to you about this concern we have about baptism. Have you heard about this? Do you see how different this is to our natural response? when we perceive a problem or an error in somebody else. When we hear something wrong or something off, oftentimes our first reaction is not to kindly pull someone aside and talk to them. (laughs) It's not to give them even the benefit of the doubt. We think the worst of people, we assume malintent. Sometimes we can be not just confrontational but even explosive. And if you think this isn't an issue in our culture, I mean, just read social media for a minute go look at politics we are terrible at this whenever someone in our culture has an issue we post about it we blog about it we rant about it and then we talk about it to just about everybody except the person who we have an issue with our culture has no idea how to handle conflict responsibly It's like we've forgotten how to talk about issues. We are quick to raise our fists. We're quick to slam on our keyboards. We're quick to rebuke. And thinking about that, then the church should be a place where people are gentle, where people assume the best when it comes to correction. That when we have an issue with someone, with something someone said, with something the pastor preached, or a comment made in a Bible study, let's assume the best. And then gently, and yet boldly, take the person aside and say, hey man, when you said that, is that what you meant? Because this is what I heard, and it really bothered me, and, and I don't know if that's what you meant. And if it is, you know, I really care about you and I just want to talk to you about it because I think it might be harmful to your gospel witness. We all need correction at times, but there's a right way to do it. And let the church be an example of people who do this well, especially in a culture that totally, totally has lost the way. Now the other side of this coin I think is equally important. Not only should we approach correction with humility, but we also ought to Receive correction with humility. Have you ever been corrected before? Can you think of that situation? And how did you respond? How did you feel about it? Did you ignore the person? Did you blow up? Did you maybe not even consider that what they said could be true because of who said it? No one likes to be corrected. Well, consider this situation. Apollos has just preached his heart out on a subject that he is very passionate about. We always hate to be corrected in things that we love. And he's corrected by whom? Not a Pharisee, not a philosopher. Not someone with his training or education, but a couple of tent makers. And more than that, if you notice, Priscilla's name comes here first. The order matters. It seems like she had a a big role in this conversation. And in this time period, for a woman to correct a man was a big deal, it was a cultural taboo. So, Paulus had every reason. To just be like, I don't need to listen to these people. And yet, look how he sits at their feet and takes the correction that they give. Perhaps just as miraculous as Priscilla and Aquila's confrontation of Apollos is also the humble reception of their comments by Apollos. Now, the text doesn't say that Apollos is like, man, you're right, I really ought to change. But it does say this, if you look at it, He decides to go to Achaia, which is where the church in Corinth was situated. And it says that the Ephesian church and Priscilla and Aquila wrote letters of recommendation for him. You don't write letters of recommendation to a heretic. (laughs) You don't write letters of recommendation to a guy who's stubborn and doesn't want to take the correction. It's clear that he accepted what they said and he changed as a result of it. He humbly listened to these tent makers and received their instruction. And thinking about that, my hope is that all of us will have the same humility when we are corrected, especially by those who we would naturally feel like have no right to correct us. Now, to summarize this passage, I think it shows us three things. One, that all of us need correction sometimes. Two, that every believer has something to offer in helping one another grow up in Christ. And three, it shows us how we ought to go about both correcting others and receiving correction. But thinking about these applications as a whole, we would be remiss if we were not to remember why this is even possible. And not really even just these three applications, but, but Paul's ability to hand over leadership. That is such a rare thing. In a world where governmental leaders cling and claw to little power that they have, Why is Paul willing to give away power to others? In a world where being wrong means getting chewed out publicly on every social media platform and canceled by the culture, why are Priscilla and Aquila able to so humbly assume the best in Apollos and take him aside and kindly instruct him? And in a world where people are unwilling to even hear the opinions of somebody who disagrees with them, Why is Apollos willing to sit at the feet of humble tent makers and listen to them? This is not possible because Christians have decided to be more humble than the world. It is possible because our Savior was humble for us. You see, there's nothing more humble than for God who is perfect to stoop and become a man and take our sin, and take the rebuke that we deserved. If that's true, and if the gospel is true, then there is no room for human pride in the life of the Christian. And now that God has taken our place and he's indwelt us with the spirit that is day by day transforming us into his image We can humbly give away leadership. We can correct and rebuke in real humility because Jesus is making us humble as he is. And I want to be a church full of people like this. I want us to be a church full of people like this. And when that happens, when we allow the spirit to change us, when we become a church concerned about growing up one another in Christ in humility, we will experience powerful gospel ministry. If you look back at the text, you can see what came as a result of this conversation between Priscilla, Aquila, and Apollos. Apollos desired to go share the gospel and work in Corinth. And look what happened in verse 27 and 28. When he arrived... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He began to encourage the believers in Corinth. He greatly helped them, the text says, and he powerfully refuted the Jews. To accurately translate what the Greek is really trying to get across here, He uses a double compound word. It's something more like he mightily argued them down all the time. (laughs) Apollos crushed their arguments. And because of the faithfulness of Priscilla and Aquila to correct and the humility of Apollos to listen, he went on to do great work in the church of Corinth. And this time, unlike in Ephesus, he probably didn't leave out the part about being baptized in the name of Jesus. As Paul would later say, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And I want to end our time together with this picture. In the text, you can see the way that each person contributed to the work of the gospel. Paul raised up and left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. Priscilla and Aquila instructed Apollos. Apollos humbly received it and went to Corinth. And there he greatly helped those Who through grace had believed. This is discipleship. This is what helping one another grow up in Christ looks like. And this is what the church is supposed to do and what we are supposed to do for each other. What might it look like for us to humbly follow after Christ like this? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the example of humility and you are the power by which we become humble. That you've given us this text, Lord, to to show us what it looks like to correct and be corrected. And Father, we just thank you that it is not left in our own hands to do this, but by your spirit, we look more like you day by day. We thank you. We love you. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.